0: I want to announce one more time at least the dates for the feasts since we're going to Utah in place of staying in Arizona. It makes an hour's difference time uh, in relationship to Greenwich, England. I know I spent some time explaining that and probably confused everybody, but essentially there's simply a one hour difference in the clock that is being observed in Arizona and Utah at the time that the feast comes, and we do count uh, the time of the conjunction from uh, the site of Jerusalem, and will be, I think, going to that place for the feast. <clears throat> so, with the change, trumpets will be September 17th as opposed to 16th. Everything in September and October will move forward one day uh, because the new moons of both September, no, no, uh, yeah, September and October, uh, both. We're very close to uh, sundown, and it does affect them one day based on uh, daylight savings time in Utah. So, trumpets the 17th, the fast of the 7th month. will move forward day, also to the 19th. Atonement the 26th, and Feast of Tabernacles October 1 through 8. I think you probably all got that, but there might have been some who missed it, especially out on the phone line. And I wanted to mention it again. In terms of other uh, things about the feast, uh, we need to put a sign-up sheet. If somebody has a piece of paper, maybe, uh, Charlotte, can you do this afterwards so it's done? Put a sheet back on the table at the back of the room uh, to at least give us a rough idea of how many will be staying at our campground and how many would be in motels or, or, or whatever uh, your arrangement might be. Uh, so, for planning purposes, uh, I have been up there three times this week. I'm getting more and more excited each time I go up to check out different, different items. Uh, BLM has approved where we're meeting They don't have any problem with that. No prairie dogs or anything to disturb at that particular site. (coughs) Been checking into porta-potties, and uh, we ordered a tent for meeting. Uh, It has arrived. It's on my pickup. So we have that done, and uh, it's going to be large enough to easily handle everyone in an auditorium-type setting, probably not tables, but we're trying to keep the expense down uh, within reason, uh, and it was going to cost a whole lot more to rent a tent than to buy one. And then we have it. Uh, also, as far as showers, I think I mentioned that we're building a shower unit. And I, I want to explain that a little more. Actually, what we did is we got a five-gallon bucket and stuck a hole in the side. Now, I'm afraid that's what you might be thinking is the reason I wanted to to elaborate a little bit more. We happened to have a fifth wheel trailer which had been partially burned and we'd stripped it down almost to the the floor and wondered what to do with it. And now this came up and it will make a wonderful uh, rolling shower unit. Uh, We've been working on it already, some of the walls are being built and we cleaned the rest of the the deck off the trailer and uh, we're going to put in four shower units. I got the vinyl picked up. Jared's going to lay it on the floor tomorrow, so it'll have a nice heavy vinyl floor throughout and showers with stalls and with doors and dressing rooms there. We're going to put up a big tank on the fifth wheel portion of the trailer and be able to fill it uh, off of a truck if it goes empty, which it probably will. We might have to fill it every couple days. But uh, we'll pressurize the system so that you have good water pressure in the showers and cold and hot, I have a gas water heater we're putting in. So uh, to rent one like this was about 6000 bucks, And I think we're going to get this built, since we already had the trailer for about 1000 to 1200 somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, it, you might add 100 to that or two because there are always costs that you didn't quite figure on. But. We can do it actually quite reasonably and have a very nice uh, facility. Uh, It'll be walled all the way around the trailer with a roof on it and uh, be quite nice, I think, by the time we get it done. And it won't take too much to finish it up now, uh, now that we have it started. So I wanted to let you know that uh, things will not be quite as uh, rough as, as you might think. We'll have a nice, the tent has walls on it. It's not just a canopy, but it can keep out sun and uh, wind and so on. Uh, And uh, let's see, the porta-potties, I'm negotiating possibly to buy some used ones, but uh, I found a place that's about half the price of other places for renting them. So that decision has not been made yet, but we'll have those there as well. And a place for trash, and garbage, and so on. So we got the sign-up uh, sheet. Uh, in terms of motels, some of you especially that are uh, from coming from other states and out of town, uh, Cedar City is really the closest place to uh, the feast site. I heard that someone had tentatively at least made reservations in Parowan. Well, as the crow flies... Parowan is a little closer, but if you have to go by road, it's either uh, dirt road and through somebody's fence and maybe yard, uh, unless you go clear around. So actually Cedar City is considerably closer, and the edge of town uh, at exit 62 there at Loves is about nine miles from where the tent will be, uh, two, two on gravel road and seven on pavement and from there you go into whichever exit of Cedar City you want, there, of which there are three, uh, if you need motel facilities. Uh, I think you can get on the Internet quite easily and, and find out uh, from the Cedar City yellow pages all the names of motels. I do have a Cedar City phone book, but it actually should be quite easy to find what is there. Uh, there may be some who need uh, trailers moved up, Uh, We have several people here uh, with pickups that are capable of moving either a pull trailer or a fifth wheel trailer. And uh, no one's going to charge for the time or energy to do that. But probably, uh, I figure, at least with my pickup, and I think the rest of them are about the same, it would require a dollars a gallon, roughly about $60, to take one up and bring it back, total cost. So, pretty reasonable as far as that's concerned. So, uh, if any of you have need, uh, feel free. I am sure, I know Nelson is quite willing to pull trailers up. I'm sure Charles would be. Uh, I think he's nodding yes. Uh, I can. Uh, uh, Gordon has a pickup. There there are quite a few who actually have trucks that are big enough to, to haul them. And some of us have the fifth wheel or gooseneck hitches, either one. Uh, I'll make up a map with exactly where to have all the turns, so you'll have that. Here's another question I hadn't really thought of. It's what about bringing pets to the campsite? Uh, I would say horses and goats might be pushing it, but uh, uh, a cat or a little dog or something, I don't think would probably be a problem unless we put them all in one pen and there was a great deal of noise. If your pet's well-behaved and it's not going to cause any, you know, lots of noise and problems throughout the night and so on, uh, I don't know that there's any objection to bringing pets along. Uh, Chickens might be hard to take care of, but uh, if you put out plenty of feed and water, chickens can pretty well take care of themselves. And I'm sure there will be some coming back and forth every two or three days to take care of their larger animals and so on. But uh, unless somebody thinks of an objection, I don't think I do, particularly. uh, There's plenty of place to walk them out there. Uh, In terms of uh, Feast of Trumpets up at the lodge in Zion, Greg is working on getting enough red passes so we can all drive up to the lodge as opposed to having to take the shuttle in. That'll be nice if that comes through. And I, he said he thought he could get enough. And I think that takes care of most of those things for the moment. There'll probably be others. Uh, in terms of sermonettes, I want to make a comment here for the sake of uh, guys that have been giving sermonettes. Uh, we're going to finish out the particular schedule that we have up through September 15th with sermonettes as they are. However, uh, it's getting to be kind of a push for us to have a sermonette at all times, uh, because some of the guys are giving sermons as well, and the rotation comes up pretty quick. So I think we're going to at least temporarily put a hiatus on sermonettes after this schedule runs out including the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, Sermonettes do have some value. Uh, They have been in the church for a long, long time, and I think Mr. Armstrong really originally uh, started them up to help train speakers. And here we have guys that have already had quite a bit of experience, and we're not, at the moment at least, have the numbers of people whereby we need to train a bunch of people to give sermonettes. So... Uh, For the time being, at least, we might go back to them at some point. I'm not saying we're trying to do away with them. I don't want to see a doctrinal problem with them. They were a convenience and could be a help at times. But right now, we're at a manpower situation where (coughs) it becomes somewhat difficult. So uh, those of you who might have been given sermonettes, some of you will be given a sermon uh, at the feast. There might be an exception or two from somebody coming in from somewhere else. If they want to give one, I, uh, I can schedule that without any problem because they're not giving them week by week and month by month anyway, as the guys here are having to do. So we will do that at least for now. Let's see, is there anything else here? I think that's pretty much it on announcements. <coughs> I find it quite interesting to consider where we are right now in the Psalms. I think I may have mentioned this even last week and went back just a little bit. But let us understand that we are at a very historic moment in the history of the world. We are at a moment that is... Tantamount to Israel coming out of Egypt at the Red Sea. Or going into the promised land. We are at the end of the age. This is the biggest time in history to consider. Because all the prophecies of the past that were fulfilled once, twice, three times depending on the nature of the prophecy now are going to have their greatest and their final fulfillment. So that after this end time is done, those prophecies will no longer exist. They will not be there to look forward to or against. They will simply be done. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they shall be fulfilled. So, their time will come and it will go. So we need to grasp where we are and particularly in terms of the end time church, of the end time work of the latter temple and what has to be done and where it has to be done. This is a very momentous time. And I do not think it is a paradox at all (laughs) that we approach Psalm 131 and the ensuing chapters right when we are. Now you will recall, I think from last week, or no, I guess I didn't speak last week, last time I spoke anyway, that we went into Zechariah 2, the end of it, where Christ is telling us it's time to flee from Babylon. It's time to prepare for Christ to raise out of his holy habitation and to begin to take a direct hand in things. And then in the last verse, it says, I will choose Jerusalem again. We have come to see, I believe, that the true and original Jerusalem has been desolate for many generations. There is no habitation there. There is nothing basically but lizards and, and coyotes, jackals, and wildlife. Very little reason for mankind to go there. Now, Christ said that the temple would be taken down and not one stone left upon another. That happened. And yet, isn't it strange, in a way, Well, not just in a way, but it's just plain strange that the Jews have what they call the Wailing Wall in the fake Jerusalem, and they claim that is the West Wall of the Temple. So they go there by the dozens, hundreds, thousands, and over time millions, to weep at the Wailing Wall for the Temple to be rebuilt. That is not the West Wall of the Temple. Christ said it would be torn down and not one stone left upon another. And even the foundation of Jerusalem, I don't know what I did with that, I I read that this morning, Uh, they wanted to take it down to the foundation, completely obliterate. So if the temple were taken down and not one stone left, (coughs) putting a lot of scriptures together where I will not go today, Jerusalem also was taken down so that not one stone would be left upon another. It speaks of the church that way. So what we have is probably at least 1,700 years in which Jerusalem has not been inhabited, has not been recognizable by any stone stacked upon another. And let me throw in another thought that occurred to me this morning. In that amount of time, hundreds of years, piled upon hundreds of years, no one has sinned in Jerusalem. Think about that. If it has been desolate all these generations, no man's living there, no man's going there, it is sin free. Now we are poised, I believe, to go to Jerusalem to keep the feast for the first time in nearly 2,000 years this year. Why does he call upon us To be a holy and righteous people. He has taken the weak, the base, the sinful, us. Done it on purpose. He could have found people with higher character, higher morals, higher uh, obedience, higher intelligence, higher education. And called them to do this. But he said, no, I will call the weak and the base. I will show my glory through people who are not much. I will cause them to be righteous. And he is working now with, I think, a very small group. God starts small, you know, to prepare us to do something that has not been done in a long time. Let's do a quick review here, before we get to where I left off last time at Psalm 136, to review a little bit of the context of what we're talking about. And I brought up Zechariah there, because when you get into chapter 3... It talks about Satan resisting those who would obey God. And there's another place that says they were all brands plucked out of the fire, particularly Joshua there in that context, which is speaking of the time of the latter temple and the leadership that God is going to provide for the church. But the big thing there that was brought up, as I mentioned before and probably will again, is that God says, I am the God who is again choosing Jerusalem. He did not say, I am the God of creation. I am not the God who brought you out of Mitzrayim. I am the God who is choosing Jerusalem. And to me, that is very fitting, because from the standpoint of history, Satan has counterfeited and deceived the whole world, just like he has in theology and in everything else. History has been changed and rewritten, and the victors write history, they say. So, it is only from one standpoint that history is written. The history you read of World War II was written by... English and Americans, not by Polacks or or, uh, Germans or someone else. So it's from our viewpoint. Now Satan has rewritten history from his viewpoint. And when Jerusalem is again restored and chosen and God begins to work there for the first time in all these hundreds of years, it makes Satan very nervous. It agitates him. He hates it. And he will do everything he can to stop it. And that's why, when the angel stood there, the Lord said, The eternal rebuke you, Satan. I am the God who is choosing Jerusalem. And I will use whomsoever I please. So shut up, is basically what is being said there. So we are standing at a very important moment in history in which I think God has revealed the true promised land, revealed Zion, and now I believe is revealing Jerusalem. And even as God did not put us in Zion when we came here, but put us in an open valley outside, or just before, the Canaan Mountains, I think there's some symbolism there. We also are not planning on meeting at the original town site of Jerusalem, which would be difficult to reach because of roads and so on, and may not be positively identified yet as to where the exact city wall was, but we're meeting at the base of the holy hill of Jerusalem. Just as we're meeting at the base of the Canaan Mountains today. And I think that also could be very symbolic. That after twelve years in this organization, twelve tribes, the number of twelve is also the number of completeness, God has put us through 12 years before he has inspired, motivated, directed, or caused us to settle. We should go there, even though we've known about it for several years. It never became that compelling, let's say. But in my mind, and in the minds of some of you who suggested it this year, it had become compelling. So even as Abraham went to find a city... God has asked us to do the same thing. Now, let's see this laid out for us here in the Psalms as we move forward. Chapter 131, he says, My heart is not haughty or my eyes lofty. God has been working at humbling us, me. He's been working at getting us in a right attitude, Satan has been working overtime to try to pit us one against the other and to destroy us. All kinds of things have been going on behind the scenes because Satan is resisting this momentous event that is about to occur. So there are very good reasons for everything that has been happening. God wants us to have a right attitude and a right approach, approach to go up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, at Jerusalem. And as I said, it is a place where there has not been sinning going on for a long time. Now, how does that square with Revelation 11? Someone would immediately ask. Where it says Jerusalem, is as Sodom and Egypt. Now, that is in the context of the time when the two witnesses will be preaching for three and a half years. It is speaking of that specific time during the tribulation when the abomination of desolation has been set up in the temple and Jerusalem has been polluted for the last time. That is the context of Revelation 11. Now, Jerusalem has not been as Sodom and Egypt these past 2,000 years, roughly it has been quiet it has been desolate the walls have been broken down and it says those who will obey god and fast properly isaiah 58 among other places will be the repairers of the breach will restore the walls and those foundations that have been fallen have fallen for thousands of years Oh, the one I was quoting earlier, the Edomites said, raise it, raise it, not raise, but R-A-S-E, destroy it, down to the foundation. And then God upbraids the Edomites for having said that, and he will punish them for it. It may very well be that the Mormons have a lot of Edomite blood in them. That's an aside, but a possibility. So, attitude is important, and we need, and I'm saying this now and ahead of time, we need to be aware of the portent of what is about to transpire, and we need to be preparing our minds, our attitudes, our approach, so that we are going up to keep the feast with joy, with happiness, with great anticipation, With worship toward God in our minds. Now let's go on and see, because this context right here in the Psalms fits this. And I think God brought us to this point at this time on purpose. So attitude in Psalm 131 of humility and meekness, not being proud or thinking we must be really something because God has shown us this. No, it's just a preparation crew. It's just to start the process is what we're here for so he said in 132, Lord, remember David and his afflictions and how he wanted to serve God. And in verse 3, Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up to my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the eternal and habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Now, God has shown us in many scriptures that his habitation will be Jerusalem and Zion. That is the area that has always been the center of his attention. And because of sin, it has been left desolate for all these years. But it is interesting that David was saying, I I can't sleep until I know where God is going to be what he is doing. Now this is a prophecy. David lived in Jerusalem. He knew it was the chosen place. So he didn't have to go look for God's habitation. Abraham had to go look for it because he didn't know where it was. We have to do the same because God has made it desolate until the end and it has to be revealed again. Now he says, Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the wood. Now, if you look up Ephrata, it means fruitfulness. The word Ephraim means fruitfulness. So, though it be in the land of Judea, when the tribes are resettled, it is in the country of Ephraim, the most fruitful country on the face of the earth. That is where to look. Now, that is not where you normally would look, would you? You would look in Judah, or what they might term Israel today. But what they call Israel basically was Judah then. Well, it's big enough that, it's not very big, but it's big enough that the tribes, they say, were in that area. Uh, It's not truly big enough, but that's a different story, and we'll get to that at another time. So, we heard of it in Ephraim. Isn't that where we heard of it? Right here in Ephraim. We found it in the fields of the wood. Now, that's where they took the ark from originally was the field of the wood. That was where? Jerusalem. The temple. That was the center of everything and of worship. The Philistines kept it and then David was so happy to have it back that he danced in the street. So here we find ourselves at the end of time, hopefully humbled and hopefully ready, for God to reveal where in Ephraim this was. And I think that we know now the, where the holy mountain or the holy city of Jerusalem is, and the actual location of the city wall and the temple, uh, I don't think, is far behind. We will go into his tabernacle, we will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Eternal, into your rest, you and the ark of your strength. Now, that's essentially what he's saying at the end of Zechariah 2. It's time for him to raise up out of his holy habitation and begin to actually do this end time work. We have been here in preparation for that. And if he is now centering on getting Jerusalem established again, then that places us at the end of Zechariah 2 in the beginning of Zechariah 1. That's, I believe, where we are. Same language here. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So after all this time, if God allows us to go back to the field of the woods, to that location which He has established and chosen yet again, In the land of Ephraim, we should come with joy, we should come with excitement that for the first time in all these years God can come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. The Jews have a saying that they have been using for a long, long time called, next year in Jerusalem. It's one of their toasts, it's one of the things they mention quite frequently. I want to alternate that, or, uh, that's the wrong word, alter that a little bit. This year in Jerusalem, not next year, well, next year too, but this year in Jerusalem. Now, how exciting is that? So, he calls upon us to prepare ourselves. Remember there in First Chronicles 30? how they were going to keep the Passover for the first time in so many years as it was written, and how the priests had to uh, cleanse themselves, the people had to prepare themselves, they had to prepare the temple, they had to get everything ready. And they couldn't even get it all done in time, so they kept the second Passover instead. They wanted everything in order. And I think there's a spiritual uh, lesson there for us that each of us get his spiritual house in order as best we possibly can. Think about it for a moment. You know, we used, different people in the church have had this dream, and some have had it more than once, about it was time for the resurrection, and they were standing there and they saw people going up, and they were trying and they couldn't get off the ground. I've had that dream, I don't know, a time or two or three or four in my life, years ago, and I've heard many, many, many people in the church say that they had, dream that they were having trouble. So we talk about grabbing somebody's ankles or, you know, whatever we might do as a joke. So we do that. But readiness is very important. If we go up, uh, there was an expression I was going to use there, now it leaves my mind. Uh, We have opportunity to prepare ourselves ahead of time to go up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's what he says here. Let's clothe, let's be clothed. Oh, I know what it was. You couldn't get off the ground. What about this? I haven't dreamed it, but it's possible for any one of us. Let's say 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people go up to keep the feast this year at Jerusalem. How would you like to be the first one to send there after all these hundreds of years? Now that's a scary one. I'm a likely candidate, but to sin in thought, to sin in deed, to sin in word, to sin in attitude, or, well, there's a plethora of ways we find to sin. Think about that. Now, we will all say the wrong thing, we will all have a wrong thought, we're not perfect. But let's, that, that makes it piquant to think about who's going to be the first, who's going to be the second or the third to sin, and how bad a sin, and how much could we prevent it and cut down the amount that would be there if we prepare our minds and our hearts ahead of time to worship God in joy and to fellowship together with peace and love. We'll get to that here in just a moment. He says in verse 13, For the Eternal has chosen Zion, he has raised it for his habitation. (laughs) Zion and Jerusalem mentioned together as they are very close together physically. And in terms of the church, he uses the, the terms interchangeably. There in Hebrews 12, he calls us both Zion and Jerusalem. So I think going to the Feast of Trumpets at Zion is probably okay. But going up to keep the feast, as Zechariah 14 says, at Jerusalem, I think is very important. And maybe we'll have uh, better accommodations and more planning, and we might start keeping all the feasts there. They went up to Jerusalem to keep the Passover, you remember, as well. Uh, three times in the year, shall all your families, and especially the males, that the family can't make it, come up to keep the feast at Jerusalem. He says, "This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. that heavenly Jerusalem's coming down, the physical mount uh, of olives is going to split in two when Christ returns in glory, and that'll be his habitation forevermore. And we are honored and privileged, and that should humble us, in spite of ourselves, to have this opportunity to go up there for the first time in many generations. Wow. Verse 16, I will clothe, I'll satisfy her poor with bread, and I will clothe her priests with salvation. Her saints shall shout aloud for joy. <coughs> I think we will sing and rejoice at the feast. 133, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Here is our opportunity to go up before God and keep his feast in closeness and harmony and unity. Goodwill, good fellowship before God. That's what He desires of us. And we have time to work on attitudes and approaches and so on to be sure that we can accomplish this in the way that God would have it done. Uh, he says in verse 3, "Is the view of Hermon as the view that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there in the Eternal commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So, what we are being given privilege and opportunity to do is the beginning of something that will last forevermore. Verse 134, Behold, bless the eternal, you servants of the eternal, which by night stand in the house of the eternal. We are on guard, we are on watch, we know the end of the age is near, and the day is about to dawn, and God is going to turn his face back to his church I think, very soon now. Because that's what Zechariah 2, 3, and 4 are talking about. So the context here fits that perfectly. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the eternal, the eternal that made heaven and earth bless you out of Zion, out of Zion and Jerusalem, the area in Ephraim where the original was. So then he says, praise God's name and spends a whole chapter here on some of the wonderful things that God has done through Israel's history. And remember, this is being reviewed right at the cusp of when it is going to happen again. So he recounts in that chapter some of the wonderful things he has done as a prelude to doing it again, and yet an even greater glory than he has done in the past. He says the delivery here at the end is going to be greater than what happened in Mitzrayim and the Red Sea. Greater, by far, so that it would make you even forget the Red Sea. And yet the Red Sea is discussed over and over and over again in scriptures as a landmark thing. Yes, Abraham was delivered. Many people were delivered. Noah was. But those things are not mentioned as often as three, four million people coming out of slavery. What an incredible thing that was, where the earth parted, or the sea parted, and they came through. And even going into the promised land itself, the Jordan River backed up and parted so that they could go through. God is going to do this in even greater glory than he did then. So the prelude is here, in chapter one thirty-five, verse twenty-one. Or, yeah, blessed be the eternal out of Zion, which dwells at Jerusalem. Praise you, the eternal. I know where the boundaries of Zion National Park are. Zion, in God's view, may be a lot bigger than uh, the park itself. And it may include a bigger part of the secret places of the stairs of the National Monument than we might think. And it might even include the area that the physical city of Jerusalem was in. So he can throw the words back and forth (coughs) without any compunction or question. We came down to Psalm 136. And after that, (laughs) I said brief review, let's get back into 136. Now, this is a very interesting chapter. You remember, there are two chapters that stick out in a certain way in the Psalms. 119 talks about, in every verse, uh, some form of the law or the statutes of God, and how wonderful they are. So on that hand, we have the law, which we're told to diligently obey, and that it's a wonderful, holy, and just thing. But here we have another chapter... (coughs) which mentions his mercy in every verse. Those two stand out, one about the law and one about grace or mercy. So in this chapter, he mentions it every verse. I think that is interesting in the context of what we are talking about right now. Because who are we? What are we? And every one of us here is only here by the grace and mercy of Almighty God. To even be here, to even be part of His church, to even be part of this group in His church, or whatever. His mercy is incredible. O give thanks to the Eternal, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. O give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. Changes the name a little bit, but reiterates the same thing three times there in the first three verses. Understand the God is not a God of history. God is not a God of the past. God is the God of the future and the present only as it relates to the future. He makes it very clear that when we are part of the kingdom of God, history and the past will be entirely forgotten. He is futuristic in his thinking. He does not want to go into the past, yours, mine, theirs, or anyone's, He only wants to consider today. What your attitude or mine was yesterday carries no water with God whatsoever. He is only concerned about what our attitude is right now and what it will be henceforth. Ezekiel 33 makes that very clear and that he who is a sinner who repents will be forgiven. He who was doing good and went bad Will not be. And there's no time limit put on either one of those conditions. Whenever we go back to sin and stay there, or whenever we go back to righteousness and stay there, that is where our judgment will be based. Now, as human beings, we go back and forth between the two a lot. Because we are not by any means perfect, We try to be spiritually mature and do the best we can, but we make mistakes. We make mistakes every day. We sin in attitude or thought or word or whatever it might be. So, we cannot keep the law perfectly, and the wages of sin is death. So every one of us would die except for the mercy of God which endures forever. And he makes it very clear that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. You can't get any further away from sin than that. He doesn't want to hear about it. It is his glory to cover it, to hide it, to destroy it, to bury it in the blood of Christ. And yet we sometimes, as I gave a sermon once, dig around at the bottom of the stake through the blood of Christ looking for each other's sins. What a travesty that is. If we repent and ask forgiveness of God, he moves on. Moses spoke to the people and said, or God told Moses to tell the people, Move forward. Don't go back. Don't think about that. Move forward. He told Lot and his wife, Do not look back. Get away. From the past, she looked back and became a pillar of salt. Paul said, leaving those things which are behind, let us press forward to the mark. All through the Bible, we find God's approach is the moment we are in and forward. It is never backward. He doesn't look back. That's a satanic and a human thing that we tend to do. His mercy endures forever. If we can live up to that partially, how far ahead we'll be. How more like God we will be. As we go through life, we will have issues, perhaps with God, we will have issues with one another. That is human, and that is life. What we do about it is truly important. You see, we can all become angry. We can all become frustrated. We can all become hurt. We can all have a myriad of negative emotions based upon <coughs> excuse me, circumstances or what someone else might say, think, or do. We all are affected by those things. Now, let's use the analogy of concrete for a moment. When you first pour cement, it's fairly fluid. I mean, it it has rocks and stuff in it, but you can move it around. And anger, frustration, hurt, and all of those negative emotions that we're going to lay upon one another just by virtue of being human are somewhat fluid, and God tells us to deal with them, to move them around, to work with them, to get them smoothed out, uh, lest they harden, lest they can't be dealt with later. That's why he tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger or on our wrath. There are many scriptures along those lines which indicate that we're supposed to deal with these things. Now, some hurts, some wrong, some anger <coughs> you can't deal with in six minutes before sundown. We're human and our emotions can go very deeply. So we have to deal with them. God is saying, get over it as quickly as you can, basically is what he's saying. Sundown is just a marker because that comes quickly, whether it's 24 hours or 20 minutes. He's saying, do all you can, because we have the warning there in Hebrews about uh, Esau in chapter 12, where he was very angry, very hurt at Jacob, and with good cause. But instead of dealing with it, he let it fester and set until he became bitter. Now, anybody who has laid concrete knows that you want to get it put in the place that you want it to stay very quickly. It will begin to harden up. And whether you get it smoothed out and laid where you want it or not, it's still going to harden. And it's going to be right there where it is when it hardens. Esau was not able to deal with that, and his anger and frustration and bitterness hardened into concrete. And, and he tried to get over it, and he, he went, it, it affected him so much emotionally that he cried tears over it. But he couldn't, at that point, get over it. See, the anger and the hurt and the frustration turned to another word, which is bitterness. Now, you can take something in your mouth that's sweet or even sour and you can flush that out pretty quickly with something else. Take something that is extremely bitter on your tongue and you have to do quite a bit of washing around and, and, and trying to get rid of a bitter taste. It tends to linger. Well, God does not want to get bitter toward us and when we Ask forgiveness, he forgives. His mercy is always there. And he asks us to be like him. To work with those emotions, though they may be very strong, to deal with them before they harden into bitterness and are much harder to work with. Now, you can still move concrete around after it hardens. But then you need very large hammers or very big equipment or jackhammers or something of that nature because it's very difficult to deal with and you may have to tear the whole thing out and start completely over. You see why God deals here with the law? We all break it in 119. Then we come to 136 and He offers mercy. Mercy. What are the weightier matters of the law? And here, when we are considering doing something that has not been done for all these centuries, all these generations, as Jeremiah and Isaiah put it, God wants to be sure we understand that the only way you and I have any kind of a chance, whatever, is because of His mercy. So we have this whole chapter inset right here in this context. Verse 4, to him alone does great wonders, or to him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. Consider this, that before many of the heavenly bodies were established, the sun, moon, and stars, God had created beings, and one of them rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. Now that made a mess in God's universe, to put it mildly. God could have right then said, I'm not going to create anything else. I'm stopping right here. This has been messed up. Let's not have any more mess. But he decided in his mercy that he would start with human beings who were physical and could die very easily. And he would give us opportunity to have life eternal if we would make it through boot camp and follow his ways. So it is with great mercy that he stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule the day and the moon the night. He says that. Uh, Let's read on. To him made great lights, for the sun to rule by day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. So he was already in a merciful mode when he did the creation that we today enjoy. After all that he and his son and the holy angels had been through in the rebellion, he still chose to show mercy and create you and me. It's pretty incredible when you think about it that way. He draws it down further to him that smote Mitzrayim and their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. Israel had gone into sin. They were worshiping the animals and the fish of the Nile, they were worshiping Satan. They had forgotten God and wondered, well, which God is this that's going to deliver us when they were told God would deliver? They were abject pagans at that point, and yet his mercy endured forever. And he took them out of there. Brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endures forever. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endures forever." And even though as they complained and moaned and griped and murmured, he continued to show mercy on them. And made Israel to pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endures forever. Spends quite a little time here on this particular episode. Because, he says in Jeremiah, he's going to do it again here in the end time, even greater. An army, a flood, will come after the church when it pleases Jerusalem to go to a place of safety. And God says it will be swallowed up. He's going to do the same things he did before. Verse 16, to him which led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endures forever. After all that murmuring and complaining, he could have smitten them to death right there and just said, forget it. But he said, no, the older generation is going to die out because you complained and Groaned and moaned and murmured, muttered. Your children will go in, however, because his mercy endures forever. To him, which smote great kings, for his mercy endures forever. So even after he parted the reds of the uh, Jordan and let the children go in, uh, he smote the kings of Ham that were there. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his mercy endures forever. Og, the king of Bashan, for his mercy endures forever. And gave their land for an heritage, for his mercy endures forever. He had promised Abraham, and he did it. He didn't run out of mercy, out of forgiveness. He did it. Even an heritage to Israel, his servant, for his mercy endures forever. We quickly forget our promises sometimes, don't we? Yet God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and did not forget it. And here, even now, God has not forgotten those promises. He is about, again, to pull His portion, His tithe of His church, His remnant, as He says there at the end of Zechariah 2, into Jerusalem. For his mercy endures forever. He has not forgotten what he told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has not forgotten what he promised through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. He will have his tithe. His remnant. His portion. Uh Verse 23, who remembered us in our low estate, for his mercy endures forever. We aren't much, are we? We really aren't. If you had looked through the church 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and picked out people that you wanted to have in the latter temple, You can look back at any congregation you were in. And you might have been in several. And the ministers that were there as well, and they rotated fairly frequently because they screwed up and had to be moved. Every three, four, five years. It wasn't just a rotation basis. It was, man, how do we plug the gaps here? Because they had so many people making so many messes. But if you look back and think about it, There are notable people in each congregation you'd have thought, well, surely that one will be faithful. That one would be one of the good ones. That one would be one God would choose had you had this knowledge then. But God was going to do that. And then when it fell apart, it amazed every one of us at who stayed and who left. People that you thought were the pillars of the congregation walked right out the door. People you thought Is that when it all converted, stayed, and were faithful? You couldn't call it on a bet. But God chose whom he would choose. For his mercy endures forever. Verse 24, and has redeemed us from our enemies. For his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. Another way of putting it, it rains on the just and the unjust. God is not such that because people are evil now, they have not eaten. But now, he is about to punish the whole world. Why? Because his mercy endures forever. He knows what it will take. For people to become truly humble and repentant. And it's going to take the seven last plagues ultimately to humble people to the point they're ready to serve Him. He is not going to kill them eternally in these end time events. They're going to die physically and be resurrected in the great white throne judgment or live through into the millennium, whichever. For His mercy endures forever. If they live through, they will have been humbled by what they went through and ready to listen. If they come up in the great white throne judgment, they will remember the horror of dying and be ready to listen. Now we are different, are we not? In that, God has taken us of low estate and said, I will work through you if you will yield to me. He has taken us in and out of our sin He has taken us through everything we are and given us this knowledge, this precious opportunity to look forward to because His mercy endures forever. I would not be here if God did not have mercy on my miserable soul. There are many, many times in my life, if I stop to think about it, When I could have very easily died, and not on purpose, but as an idiot, trying to kill myself in various and sundry ways. Or at least exposing myself to the potential. There are many sins in my life that God could have cut me off for. But His mercy endured, and I'm still here. Now, He can cut me off at the next breath so easily. One heartbeat, bang, I can be gone. So can you. So nothing is guaranteed in that sense, but we've had several die lately that died in the faith, and I think they'll be in the first resurrection because His mercy endures forever. Were any one of them perfect? No. Were any who died in worldwide perfect? No. Was Herbert Armstrong? Not by any stretch of the imagination. But I think you'll be in the kingdom of God. Because God's mercy endures forever, and He is willing to overlook our infractions in the blood of the Lamb. He is our example that we should follow and do the same. And go before Him to keep the feast in joy, because His mercy endures forever. Verse 26 O oh, give thanks unto the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. Every verse reminds us of why we're here, how we're here, because God's mercy is limitless. And that is the way we are to be with each other, and he says if we are, then we are like him. And that's the way he wants it to be. When we enter his kingdom, the past will entirely be forgotten and wiped away. And never be brought up again. It will have no meaning because everything is forward. Speak to the people that they move forward. We're not to mess around in the blood at the bottom of the stake. We are to, with relief, believe in faith that our sins are forgiven and move forward. Chapter 137, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. We were out in this world, being buffeted about, doing our thing. God began to call us out of it. And then at some point we began to realize He not only wanted us to spiritually change our minds and our attitudes in Babylon, but He wanted us to physically remove ourselves from the horror that is about to come down and to go out in the area of Zion and Jerusalem to get away from it. We hung our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. Why play a harp in the middle of Babylon? For there they that carried us away required of us a song. Hey, you people of God, get your harps out. Let's sing a song to God, why don't you? This is mocking. Sometimes I think we sing this song too fast and with an upbeat attitude and that's not what this is talking about. It's like like it's a joyous song. No, not at all. It's talking about people here who didn't feel like singing while they were in Babylon dreaming and hoping for the kingdom of God or for Zion and Jerusalem who were compelled to take their instruments and sing to God. There was sarcasm. There was mockery involved. They required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth or joy or happiness. Saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Here you are, slave. Sing us a song of Zion. Be happy there. All mockery. How shall we sing The eternal song in a strange land. I look forward to going in Ephraim to Ephrata, the fruitful place, the place of the Ark of God, the place where He dwells or wants to dwell and is soon coming to dwell with us when we are gathered there. And I want to sing happily to God in His habitation. Not out here in Babylon somewhere. How shall we sing the eternal song in a strange land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, if I forget what I'm here for, if I forget my focus, if I begin to think about this, that, or the other thing, or the things of this life, and lose my focus on God, bring me back. Don't let me go there. Help me, please. Not to forget you, O Jerusalem. It's been buried, knocked flat, for many generations. Don't forget it. Desire to go there. This year in Jerusalem. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her skill, her cunning. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Make me speechless. If I can't speak of the things of God, of the church, of the true Jerusalem, don't let me talk at all. It's worthless. It's futile. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy, there are other things that can encroach and become more important to us than the eternal ones in the Jerusalem where God the Father and His Son will dwell forevermore. And our need and desire to be in that kingdom of God eternally in peace, happiness, hope, and joy. That's what this song is about. I prefer anything above the things of God. Shut my mouth. Remember, O Eternal, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, Raise it, raise it. Oh, that's where I read it. Even to the foundation thereof. Destroy it. Even the foundation. Even to the foundation doesn't mean down to where the foundation starts. It means get rid of it entirely. Even the foundation is the force of the words. O daughter of Babylon, that would be the Edomites, who are to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewards you as you have done to us. God in that sense is going to enjoy bringing the calamity upon Edom because of their attitude toward his people. We cannot be spiritual Edomites. We must be like God and not laugh at the calamity of others. That's a proverb, or is it in Ecclesiastes, Whatever it is. Well, Edom laughs at the collapse of Jacob here at the end. The spiritual Edomite will laugh at the collapse of the church. Even this church. We must preserve it. We must not let Satan win. It must not be destroyed. Otherwise, those who do the destroying will themselves be destroyed. That's what God is saying. So it applies to physical Israel. It applies to spiritual Israel. Happy shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. Now God said, vengeance is mine, and he will destroy Edom. Read the book of Obadiah for what they do to Israel. He has destroyed Worldwide Church of God because of what its Edomite leaders did to the church. And what we as spiritual Edomites ourselves did to destroy it. God doesn't like it when people attack His his Israel or His spiritual Israel, the church. He doesn't like it at all. And if we do, it will come back upon us. God will not be mocked. So even in the joyousness of what God is revealing and where He is taking us, He says, be sure and go there with the right attitude. It's got to be in place. Because we're there to be a light to the world, an example of how God is. And that has always been a pressure upon us, hasn't it? And we have not always lived up to it, have we? But here it's getting down to the brass tacks. Here it's getting to the point that Satan is so extremely agitated that his counterfeit is going to be revealed as such. And that the true promised land is going to be revealed as such. This is a critical juncture in time. Just as Christ rises out of his habitation to begin to do his wonderful work upon the earth. I emphasize this because I want us to grasp the paramount importance of where we are and what God has chosen us to do. This is extremely important, brethren. Let us not approach it half-heartedly as we did life in the church 20, 30 years ago and were spewed out. Let us approach it with our whole hearts and gladness and joy knowing that God is taking us in our humble, poor estate and using us to His glory before the whole world and to put Satan down finally forevermore. It changes in tempo and Attitude again in 138, so let's go there quickly. A little bit of a warning there, a little bit of a flashback into where we came from, and don't go back there, and don't let our attitudes go there. Don't look back, look forward. So then it repairs where our attitude should be, after the little warning chapter. 138, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise to you. We change our attitude. We don't let it be what it was. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. Interestingly, I think the best place we found to camp at the feast this year is on the east side of the holy hill of Jerusalem. We'll look east to where God's dwelling place and habitation shall be. It was smaller then, still is, It will expand to about 1,500 miles squared or cubed or triangled in the world tomorrow. But as of now, it was fairly small, certainly by comparison. Worship toward his holy temple. And praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. The truth is going to set us free. The truth of history. The truth of true doctrine the truth of God's mercy and His love for us, isn't it the proof of the pudding that if God could take me, if God could take you, in spite of our sins, our transgressions, our attitudes, if He can show that kind of mercy to not Abraham, not David, not Paul, us, and allow us to do this thing. That proves to me that His mercy endures forever. Doesn't it show? Look at you. Look at your life. Look at your past. If God can forgive everything that you have ever done and ever thought, and say, I want to use that one to help reestablish Jerusalem, and to heal the breaches, and to build the temple and the walls, whether you're speaking physically or spiritually of the church, either is incredible that he could use such as us. Does that not prove that his mercy endures forever? Wow. We really should worship toward his holy temple and praise his name for his loving, kindness, and truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. He is in the process of proving that his word is indestructible. It is here forevermore. In all the things he said, he placed his words above his name. He said, I swear by my name that these words and this book will happen. He put this book Right up there, with and, in that sense, above his name. in that his name could be taken down if these words do not prove true. And we're part of it. I can't say wow loud enough. In the day when I cried, you answered me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. God is going to strengthen us and help us to be prepared to do what we have to do in the future. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord. When this thing is done, when it is finished, they're all going to come to Jerusalem to keep the feast and worship God. Israelites, Gentiles, everybody. All nations, all peoples. When this is done. Yes, they shall sing in the ways of the eternal, for great is the glory of the eternal. Though the eternal be high, yet has he respect to the lowly. We are way beneath God, aren't we? So far beneath God. And yet he is showing respect to us, such as we are, by giving us this opportunity to go before him, to worship Jerusalem, at his feet. And to begin something that will eventually encompass the world. Now Christ truly did that by dying and being resurrected. But here in the end time, He has raised up to do this work and has chosen us to be His disciples. Think about that. Before He walked along the seaside, He walked by the tax collection booths and He picked people out To come be his followers and to start that church. He is now walking among the fishermen, the tax collectors, the lowly of the earth, and picking us to do his work. But the proud, he knows about them, but far off. He won't come to them. To us, he will be Emmanuel, God with us, living with us, dwelling with us. Maybe not visibly, but he's going to be there directing everything. He will stand against Satan, who will try to stop us. But it will not be allowed. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. Are we in the midst of trouble or what? We will be revived. You shall stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand shall save me. Isn't that what he tells us there, the remnant and Joshua? I will stand against Satan, for I have chosen Jerusalem again. The Eternal will perfect that which concerns me. He'll work with us. He'll help us. Your mercy, O Eternal, endures forever. Forsake not the works of your own hands. We are the works of his own hands. And our prayer is don't forsake us, don't forget us. And did not Christ say through Paul, I will never forsake you, I will never leave you. I will always be there, for my mercy endures forever.